0: I don't know if you have a bathroom like this in your house, but it has a long string of bulbs across a mirror, maybe 80 bulbs, something like that. Well, maybe 8 bulbs, it just seems like 80, and each bulb has about a 300 watt bulb in it. And so when you go in and turn it on, it's pretty much like staring at the sun the moment you turn Your bathroom lights on and I don't know if you've ever done this or if you have this bathroom, we used to have it in our house in the um, master bathroom and you would watch your spouse. I'm not saying this would happen in the Phillips household, but it could. This, This is, for example, you watch your spouse get up middle of the night and she turns on the lighthouse that's now in your bathroom and it's particularly brutal on your eyes And after they um, finish in the bathroom, they have to do this. They have to stand at the door and chart a course back because they know as soon as they turn the light off, they're going to be legally blind for the next two minutes. And so they're charting a course. And then you pretend all the while that you're asleep, not being asleep, trying to hold in your laughter and you watch your spouse again not in my house but in other houses i'm sure this has happened and they sort of careen off the different parts of the furniture ooh oh, ooh and you you're trying to hold it in and then just basically with minor bleeding they get back to bed and you're sort of chuckling there the whole time and so that may be the case in your house. It is, is in mine. And what that has to do with the text is in Mark chapter nine, we're moving away from the brightest light that ever showed. When we talked about the transfiguration last week, it was described in Matthew as like the sun. I mean, Jesus came on and it was like a sun and he was whiter than anything you could possibly describe. And then we're moving now in Mark chapter 9, verse 14, away from this brightness and into a dark place. We're moving down the mountain into the valley where there's a great deal of chaos. And I don't know if you've had this experience. My guess is that most of you have. You've had some great mountaintop experience. I mean, this in the Transfiguration literally was a mountaintop experience and you all there's so much clarity you're you're so sure the way to go you you have such understanding and insight and then you get back into the world and it just seems dark and what seemed clear now seems chaotic and the plunge sometimes happens quickly what seemed real what seemed tangible about Christ In this moment of clarity or this mountaintop experience, you get back down into your life and you just sort of lose perspective. Mark, I think, intentionally wants us to feel the tremendous contrast in the text. We have the transfiguration and he tries to describe it as it's wider than anything you could possibly bleach in the first part of Mark, Mark, chapter nine. And it's like Jesus is peeling back. Remember, we talked about his glory is veiled and Jesus sort of opens up the veil on the Mount of Transfiguration and the disciples are able to see into eternity. And that's the first part. And then we have this contrasting part with the valley. And just look at the language. Mark's more descriptive about this particular passage than the other gospel accounts. We have this. Uh, In the ineptness of the disciples, this poor father has come. He's got his son who's been gnashing his teeth. Maybe his son has some foam left on his mouth. He can't hear. Uh, He can't speak. And you've got this desperate father who just hoped that the disciples would be able to do something, and the disciples weren't able to do anything. And the scribes have come along, and now they're arguing with the disciples, saying, see, you have to do it this way, or you missed it, or I told you so. And then there's a crowd, a pretty large crowd, that maybe is sort of encircling this whole event like gawkers at a circus. They're just... Just taking delight in the fact of this chaos that's happening. And this is what Mark is saying. This is what Peter, James and John and Jesus are descending into. And it's at this particular point in Mark, really over the last few verses and into these verses, that Mark is shifting our focus. If you've been with us, you know that the first eight chapters of Mark, we've been focusing on who is Jesus When you look at Jesus, what's your conclusion? Who is he? What are the right words? If you're trying to describe Jesus, what are the right words to use? And Peter gets it in Mark chapter 8. You are the Christ. You're the one that all of the Old Testament is pointing to. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. And then we shift away from seeing who Christ is to learning how to live for Christ. We're shifting away from seeing who Christ is now to try to answer this question. How do I live like a disciple of Christ? Now that I've got the right words, how do I walk in the right way? And just look if you have a Bible that has headings. We'll be talking about these in the next few weeks. How do I live with, how do I live as a disciple in greatness? How about discipleship and sin? How about discipleship in marriage? How about discipleship in wealth or discipleship in power? Those are all the things that Jesus is walking his disciples through saying, Now, you need to understand how to live in this world in this way, and I'm going to help you understand these things. And today, the passage, I think, is focusing our attention on discipleship and walking through the darkness. It's easy for everyone to live in a bright, transforming moment, a a mountaintop experience. If you ever go to a camp, you particularly feel this way. And at the end of the camp, you say, oh, I wish I could stay here forever. It's just so clear. Everything's so focused. And it's easy to live in those places. And the question is, how do we live as a disciple in the chaos of this world? How, How do we... Have our focus, we've seen the bright light, and how do we navigate through the darkness and keep our focus on Christ? And the two things that I want to speak of in that direction are prayer, and then faith, and the hope of the resurrection. What, what are two of the things the text is talking about that are, that are going to help us move through the darkness? No, we're not just moving into the darkness, we're moving through the darkness And I think the text brings to light two things, prayer and faith and the hope of the resurrection. Now, I want to remind us before we get to one of those points that it's Jesus himself who is leading the disciples down into the valley. It was his decision not to stay up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, Peter wanted to stay there. He wanted to build these shelters and say, yes, finally, let's stay here. And Jesus is leading them intentionally and deliberately into darkness. In Mark chapter 4, when the disciples encounter the storm, it's Jesus who has led them into a storm. And in Mark chapter 8, when Peter says, you are the Christ, Jesus is very swift. He's very quick. At this point to say to the crowd. If you would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So I, I want you to catch that Jesus is intentionally moving his people into dark places. Now, this would have been a tremendous comfort for the people in Rome because the pe- this is a book written pretty much By Peter through Mark. And the first audience was the the early Christians in Rome. And the early Christians in Rome undertook some terrible persecution. One of the worst ones that I can just think of is they would wrap a Christian in a linen garment that had been soaked with oil. They would tie that Christian to a stake and then they would put the stake in the ground and then they would light that person on fire. And they would use him or her For a human torch. And so this is the regular uh, DNA of the Christian culture if you're reading this book. And they're going to be greatly encouraged by seeing that Jesus is intentionally leading his people into the storms. If all the disciples somehow just have this wonderful, happy life and they're going to be looking and saying, well, what about me? I, I must be missing something. And so they're going to be greatly encouraged for Jesus to say, if you're really going to follow after me, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. Some of you are living in dark times. And in the dark times, the the first thing you ask, I know this from personal experience, is where are you? God, I mean, I'm not supposed to be in this kind of situation. And I want you to know, it may very well be the situation that God himself is putting you into and is planning on bringing you through. So he is with you. You keep your eyes on Jesus. And finally, I mentioned this point. Now, this isn't a point in the sermon. This is just a note. I haven't gotten to one of my points yet. But finally, we live in a culture that has a premium on comfort and convenience, vacation and health care, on demand television. And, and I'm concerned that this mentality is leaking in. I'm not concerned about it, I'm just aware of it. It, it leaks into the church, it might be flowing into the church. And we think that God has in store for us something like that. We're supposed to have this kind of comfort or this level of comfort. When we see here, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. It just couldn't be more clear. And yet we get confused at this point and in the confusion of wanting comfort in a church leads to this. We isolate ourselves from the chaos of the world that the church was meant to reach. The church was meant to live in the very darkest places. But because it leaks into the church that we've got to surround ourselves with comfort and we've got to isolate ourselves from problems, then we find ourselves avoiding the very thing that Christ has made us to go do. And that is to live at the gates of hell and actually overcome and penetrate the gates of hell. And so I want want to just ask us this. Are we intentionally putting ourselves in the darkest places? As a church, how are we? Are we intentionally putting ourselves in the darkest places as a believer how is it that you are intentionally putting yourselves in the darkest places? That's that's the place Christ wants the church to go. That's the place he wants the brightest stars to shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, it says. But you have to be in a dark place if that's going to happen. OK, that's just a note. No extra charge for that note. Now we're getting on point to point one. So let's go back. How is it that we live through the darkness? If, if we are going to be in that place, and I believe God is leading us intentionally to those places, how do we live through those times? We're not just supposed to live in them, but how do we live through them? Because we have our eyes on the cross and the resurrection. Peter and James and John come down from the mountain with Jesus, and what's the first thing they encounter? They encounter this chaotic situation. Just the sights and the, and the sounds and, and all the competing voices and, and all the chaos. It just doesn't seem like anybody knows which way is the right way to go. And, and just focus for a moment. This desperate father. I mean, he's at the very end of himself and he's got this son that he finally hoped that the disciples could do something. Maybe he had heard the disciples had cast out demons before. And I think this picture is an intentional comparison to what was happening in Exodus 32. So if you want to hold your place there in Mark chapter 9 and turn back to Exodus 32, when Moses was descending from Mount Sinai with the law. Remember, he'd been given these tablets and now he's coming back down the mountain. He had seen the glory of God. Remember, he was put into a crevice and God passed by and he was able to see him from behind. Very much, uh, very many parallels here. And then he comes down. And then just notice this. What what is it that Moses and Joshua see and hear as they come back down to the situation? The people had gathered and they'd said, Moses is delayed from coming down from the mountain. And he called Aaron and said, get up, Aaron, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. so Aaron said, take off your gold and take off your jewelry and we'll make a calf. So all the people took off their rings and gold and in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hands and fashioned with it a graving tool made and made a golden calf. And then listen to this. Just listen to the weight of these words. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I mean, is that not just unbelievable? Of all the things the Egyptians were able to see, they were the ones that were standing at the edge of the Red Sea and it it was parted. They were the ones who were crying out for hunger and and God God brought bread. And and in the midst of this, then they deny God. And they they say what really rescued us was this other God. It's, It's almost inconceivable. And if you just think, think about Romans 1 here. Although they claim to be wise. The people claim to be wise, but what do they do? They became fools by exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals and reptiles. You see what's happened here? Moses is coming down and the people have been able to see things that are beyond our imagination. Even when we see it in a in a movie, we go. Wow, I wish I could have stood there and seen that. And he comes down and these same people have said, we've seen the glory of God and we see our gold and this calf and we're going to exchange them. We, we now believe that this God brought us out of Egypt, not that God. And remember, Moses gets so mad, he throws down the tablets. It's this very powerful scene. And now we come upon Mark, chapter nine. And Jesus coming back down the mountain and seeing this chaos. And you see these nine disciples that were left. What what had they seen? What what had they been the privilege to witness? They had watched the calming of the sea. Instead of the sea being split in half, they watched the sea rise up and Jesus calmed the sea. When thousands of people are hungry, Jesus brought bread. When a little girl was dead, He brought her back to life. And here, they've abandoned Jesus. But listen to this, not for a golden calf. They, they didn't abandon Jesus for a golden calf. What does the text say about what the problem was with the disciples? They ask him, "Well, what was our problem? Why couldn't we do that?" And what does Jesus say? "This can only come out by prayer." So do you see what had happened? The disciples, I guess they had cast out a demon at some previous point. And then they've come to another point and they go, well, we did it with Jesus once and now we don't really need Jesus because we've got this little formula or gimmick to do and we'll just do it on our own. And what was the image they were worshiping here? Do you understand? The golden image that Jesus saw his own disciples worshiping looked like themselves. I can do it, Jesus. Thank you for your help. Now I'm in the the middle. And what I really want is I want people dancing around me. And I want people to say, you're wonderful. And you can do all things. And you are glorious, Paul Phillips. That's what I really want in my heart. And I've exchanged the glory, the real weight of God, the real substance of life, and I've exchanged it for myself. You see, when when you're abandoning prayer, you've left God out and you've inserted something and here it's yourself. When you're abandoning prayer. You've taken matters into your own hands. And in some day, some way, you want people to dance around you as if you've made some great decision or discovery. When you abandon prayer, you, you step into this glorious light. It's, it would be like Christ revealing himself at the light of transfiguration and Peter trying to nudge into that so people would start looking at him. And Jesus has the same forceful reaction Moses did. Oh, faithless generation. I mean, he's not saying this with a smile on his face and a pat on your back saying, well, good try, boys. Let's try again. He looks at them and says, you're just like everybody else. You don't look any different than anybody else out here. You don't have any faith. All this time you've been with me, everything that you see, and you just in a matter of days, you abandon me for yourself. The application is difficult. See, if you're a disciple here today, you have to ask yourself, how's your prayer life? I mean, in the chaos and the busyness of your world, in, instead of praying, have you taken matters into your own hands? I wonder if there's a place in your life that you've left off praying and you've gone along on your own steam, it might be in your career or your major might be with your spouse, could be with your child, could be with the ministry or finances. You see, when you abandon prayer, that's idolatry. And you substitute something in for that. And like the disciples, I'm afraid most of us, if we were to go around and see if there's a golden image, the image would look like ourselves. So one of the things that we need to live through the darkness, something we can't waver from, something we constantly have to be reminded of, is our prayer life. A number of the journey groups are going through a book called Pray With Your Eyes Open. There's a copy of it out front if you want to look at it. I know a lot of times when you mention prayer, people go, I I hear you, Paul, I just don't know what to do. And so the book is very easy to read, helps you write out prayers, helps you to focus in on God. So if that would be a good resource for you, take a look at that and you can find it at a bookstore. There's a CD out there that you can take with you that's on a sermon that I did a couple years ago on prayer specifically. So if those resources would help or if you need to call the office, we could offer other things. So one of the ways that we need to understand one thing we need to understand, Jesus is leading us. Into dark places. So be encouraged. Keep your eyes on Christ. Don't be discouraged. Secondly, to live through that, we have to have a life of prayer. And finally, we have to have faith. And hope in the resurrection. Now, This is probably a point that's better left for a discussion. So um, you're going to have some questions and. Let's just try to make our way through and then you can call me later. Several years ago, I was at a meeting and I spoke at the meeting. It was a large Bible study. And after the Bible study was over, um, people nicely, you know, they have to because you're the speaker and you stand near the door. So they have to say something nice about you. Oh, thank you, Mr. Phillips. That was wonderful. That sort of thing. And a guy comes up to me. And in the course of the talk, I don't even remember what the subject was, but in the course of the talk, I had talked about my mother having died of cancer. And so this young man comes up to me and he says, boy, I'm really sorry to hear about your mother. If you just had faith, she wouldn't have died. See, I don't know if you've heard that. My guess is some of you have heard something like that. And if you stay around very long, you're going to hear something like that. And I want us to look at that statement. And I'm I'm very concerned that frequently, I don't think this person had the ill intentions, but we miscommunicate what we really mean to say about faith. And what I think. The guy was trying to say, I'm pretty sure this is what he was trying to say, is that if you had just hoped hard enough, if you had just been earnest enough, like faith was an an energy or a power that if you could have gotten a hold of that, Mr. Phillips, and your energy, your faith meter would have registered at some particular point, then yes, finally, you had that faith. And something happened. And I wouldn't call that faith. I'd call that either manipulation or wishful thinking. And I want us to look at this passage and see if we can uncover what what I think Jesus is communicating to the father and to us about faith. Verse 20. They brought the boy to Jesus when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground. He's rolling around. He's foaming at the mouth. Like one last moment that this demonic spirit has with child. Verse 21. I don't understand this, but Jesus takes a little time to get a medical history. This just doesn't seem like the time to ask this kind of question. Jesus asked the father, well, how long has this been happening? I'd just be like, I don't I can't think right now. Look at my son. He's rolling around. But Jesus is interested in this man, not just the son. From childhood, it's often cast him into the fire and into water. It actually tries to destroy him. If you can do anything. And notice his compassion. Have compassion on us. This is killing us. It's not just him. If you, ha- if you can, the word, Greek word there is the word used for dynamite. If you, if you have the power, if you have the ability, Jesus, and Jesus quickly turns that statement around, if you can. It's as if he's saying, sir, what's on trial here? What's in question is not my ability of whether I can do something. All things are possible. What's on trial or what's in question is, are you willing to trust me alone? That's what's on trial here, sir. Do you understand that? I'm not just here for your boy. I'm here to see if you understand that what's on trial for you is, can you trust in me alone? Period. He's not saying, trust me to do something. Like heal a son. I think he's saying, do you trust me with something? So that no matter what I do, you will look at me and say, in the end, it's going to be for the best. Let me say this again. I think when we're talking about faith in this passage, it's not trusting Jesus to do something you want. That's manipulation. That's using Jesus to get what you want. As if you know all the right things to do and you just help Jesus understand, Jesus, this would be a good thing for you to do. Enter in here. That's just using Jesus. That's manipulation. You're in the center of that relationship. Real faith is trusting Jesus with something or someone to do whatever he pleases. So I could remember when my mother was dying of cancer in the summer of 1986. Wrestling through tears, standing just off the porch in my backyard where there's this wooden picket fence. Late at night, midnight, maybe. And saying, God, I, I'm trying to have faith. I, I'm trying to have this energy. I'm trying to have this force within me that will help you heal my mother. I'm trying to have faith that you are going to heal my mother. In other words, I didn't say it this way, but this is what I think I was saying at the time. Jesus, I want you to do what I want. Can you not hear that? Now, I don't know that that's what I was saying, but I'm looking back saying that's what I was saying. Of course, you don't have clarity at that moment over time. And I think Jesus would have responded, although this is not what he said audibly or anything. He would have looked at me and said, you know, Paul, I'm wondering if you have faith in me to do whatever I want. You see, it's easy for me to have faith in Jesus when he does whatever I want. I rather like that situation. But the question is, can I have faith in Jesus when he says, you have to let me do whatever I want? And I was sure that I could trust him if he did what I wanted, but I wasn't sure that I could trust him with my mother to do whatever he wanted to do. That's what I was uncertain of. So verse 24 This is where I want to take this man and give him a big kiss because I want to go, yes, that's exactly like me. You just spit your words, were spit it right out of my mouth. He looks at Jesus just immediately and he says, well, I believe, but help my unbelief. In other words, my faith sort of looks like Swiss cheese. For a moment, I feel like I'm faithful, but if I just move a little bit, I feel like I've got a big hole in my faith. And I wonder if you've ever felt that way before. You see, I think he's saying, look, I'm trying to be faithful. I brought my son to you. I'm I'm trying to take a step in that direction. I, I brought my boy. I brought my mom. I brought my career. I brought my spouse. I brought my money, I brought all of my dreams here to your feet, but at at the same time, I'm trying to give them to you, I'm trying to hold on to them. I'm riddled with doubt. You see, when I, when I, Jesus, when I see my son rolling around on the ground, when I feel pain in my life, I admit I begin to doubt that you care. I begin to doubt that you can. I begin to doubt that you have my best interest in mind. I have those doubts when that comes in the dark times of my life. It's like I'm walking through the darkness and I'm bumping into all these things. I can't overcome them. Can you help somebody like me? Yes. Now now that's a person I can help. When they've completely laid everything in faith at my feet so that I can do whatever it is I want to do with it. Not whatever it is you want or I want to do with it. Let's conclude by looking at what happens here and how Jesus works and how the work presses us forward to the resurrection A much greater work. Verse 27. Verse 26, after crying out. Somehow the crowd is moving quickly. I don't know how they've gotten away from the crowd. It doesn't say. But Jesus is going to heal this boy. And the crowd, I guess, begins to get the circus mentality again. Something's going to happen over here. And Jesus is healing the boy. Crying out, the spirit convulsed him terribly. It came out. The boy's was like a corpse, and maybe the crowd's rushing in, and they say, Oh, he's dead. I want you to imagine the long silence of that moment for the father. You see, here's my guess. There are times. When you're at the end of yourself, like the Father, you give Jesus everything. You give him your most precious things, like your mother, your child, and the situation gets worse instead of gets better. Have you ever felt that way? Just when I really let it go, and in the back of my mind I thought, now he's going to do what I want, it gets worse. Everything seems to fall apart in this moment for the man. And I wonder if the man looks at Jesus and thinks, you killed Him. I wonder if the disciples at the cross look at Jesus and then look up to heaven and say, you, you killed Him. This was the hope for everybody. And you you killed him. You could have done anything else. But you killed him. And you may be staring at something in your life. And with tears coming down your cheeks, you're looking at him or it and saying, you killed it. I thought you were going to do something with it. Instead, you killed it. And the father gets to see immediately what the disciples have to wait three days to see. You may have to wait a lifetime to see it. That the best was going to be done. In fact, it was beyond all your imagination. So that even when Christ puts things to death, He's going to resurrect. He uses that language. He he lifts the boy up. Mark is intentional with the language. It's the same language with Jairus' daughter who gets lifted up. It's the same language here. It's the same language in Mark 15 when Jesus rose from the dead. You see, I don't have your best interest in mind, Paul. I have a much bigger interest in mind. And it's going to be for the best even if right now it looks like it's dead. And I'm wondering here trying to live through the darkness with hope, not just living in the darkness and depression, but living through the darkness with hope, whether our death, the death of a loved one, the death of a dream, do we have enough faith to give Jesus all of it? and say, you do what you want to do. That's faith. And if you're like me, and your faith feels like Swiss cheese, here's a prayer. God, I believe. Help my unbelief. See, no matter how bright the moment you've had in your Christian walk, No matter how clarifying that scene, you're going to spend a lot of your time in the darkness and in the desert. And you're going to have to focus on Jesus. And you do that by prayer and trusting Him with every situation for Him to do what He wants to do. Trusting that in the end, those things are going to be resurrected and brought back in ways that are beyond your imagination. And so, here's what I think. I think my mother is saying, I'm so glad that happened. And I think when I meet Him in glory, I'm going to say, I'm so glad my prayer didn't get answered. I'm so glad your prayer got answered. It's incredible. I would have never dreamed of something like this. But see, in the darkness, gosh, that's so hard to hold on to. And you hold on to it. By hearing this, by praying, by trusting Jesus who may right now be putting things to death in your life. Let me just say these two things in conclusion. If you're living in darkness, meaning you haven't trusted in Christ. Then what you have to do is what this man did. You have to come to Christ and say, I'm just not holding on anymore. It's all about you if you've seen the bright light and you feel like, yes, I'm like this person bumping around in the darkness. I'm getting pretty skinned up here, Paul. I felt like I was going in the right way, but I've run into an object I just can't seem to muster the strength to overcome. You can't muster the strength to overcome it. You have to trust in somebody who can in Christ. And you do that by prayer. If you're in the darkness, He is with you. Pray. Keep calling on Him. If you're in a dark place, keep calling on Him. Resist from taking matters in your own hands as if you know what's the best thing to do. Let's pray. God, these are our are things we have to wrestle with and we have to, we have to work them into our minds and into our souls. And we have to work the sin out of our lives that would, would put us in the center, that would fashion an image that would look like ourselves. And we, we can't even do that. We believe, help our unbelief. Rescue us from ourselves. Come in, Holy Spirit, and and turn the light on in the darkness for people who live there permanently. Come in, Holy Spirit, and encourage us to be men and women of great faith, keeping our eyes on the hope of the resurrection, and praying, praying to the One who can do all things. we come and we give our lives partially in what you've given to us. And so you can do all things. I pray that you take this and multiply it a thousandfold for the glory of your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen.